Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You know, we think of the song that we just uh, sang a moment ago, Victory in Jesus. And oh, what great soteriological victory there is. There is victory in the cross of Christ. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. But thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of Romans chapter 8. We are now more than conquerors through Christ Jesus which loved us. And so we can think so much of the victory in the Christian life. But then we would leave these doors and leave the friendly confines of other godly folks and other preachers of the, of the word of truth. And then we get out into a world system in which, John chapter 16, we have tribulation. We get out into a world where there's difficulty. We get into a world in a very society that is antithetical to God's commands. It's wicked is what I'm saying. And at times we feel isolated. It doesn't take much to look around and wonder how in the world we're going to have victory in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're salt on every side. I remember a couple years, many years ago, I, I worked at a, uh, at a uh, factory plant and we made hydraulic valves and I worked overnight. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know if every factory job is like this, but this factory job, the critters got rough after midnight. And the fellows working on that line, uh, they would get foul and mean and just like they hated their life. And each day I was subjected 60 some hours a week uh, to them. And I began to think, my, this is what many folks that come to church on a regular basis have to live with. Victory in Jesus did not seem to be the chorus line that was being sung. And yet, with all of that, I could rest in the security of one great promise, that God is faithful. Amen. And sometimes society does not seem as though it is a place of faithfulness, or at least that it is such conducive to faithfulness. And sometimes the place where I may live and the place where I may work and all of the combatants which I will face does not seem to be a place that I have victory, but I have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God would have me reciprocate His faithfulness. That's been an underlying theme really throughout the course, not only the uh, throughout the week rather, uh, not only the faithfulness of God, but it would seem because God is faithful, He has empowered His believers that you and I can be faithful as well. Your Proverbs chapter 20. Draw your eyes, if you will, down uh, to verse number 6. Proverbs chapter 20 and uh, verse number 6. You're ahead of me. I'm not turned there yet. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse number 6. And then we'll go to Ezekiel. The scripture says, most men, if you write in your Bible, you highlight that a moment and put me included. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. Look at this phrase. But a faithful man, who can find? I think of the dear Apostle Peter, shortly before the crucifixion of our Lord. During that entire passion of Christ, where was Peter? A faithful man, who can find? Where were all the disciples? It was though Satan had smitten the shepherd and the flock now was fleeing. There's been many times that it would seem that our strength fell us. But there is a faithful man, as we heard the other night, a faithful man that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. And there is strength to be had in the faithfulness of Almighty God who has loved us, as we've heard this evening, and has called us to virtue and praise and to every good work. 
And regardless of the darkness that surrounds and the ebbing tides that exist, you and I, through the power of God, have no reason not to be faithful to the faithful one. That's not to say difficulty doesn't come. Look over in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an interesting one. You don't hear too many messages out of Ezekiel on a regular basis. Uh, probably, though, we've all done our due diligence, and as though we have not uh, heard many messages out of it, we've all studied it thoroughly from beginning to end, and, and we know all of the details, and so I'll just take a moment to remind us, just in case it might have escaped us to one end or another. But Ezekiel is an interesting character. We refer to him as an exilic prophet, meaning he is not in the land in which he lived. He is not in the land, rather, of which he was born. He was born in the land of Israel. He was born in the land of promise. He was born in the land of inheritance. And by the way, it's still both of those things, even to this day. Ezekiel's there. Ezekiel comes and falls in love with a gal and marries her. We know he had a wife. You'll find about her in Ezekiel chapter 24. And he ministers there. Some believe that this first verse of chapter 1 talks about it being in the 30th year of his life. It would seem chronologically that if that is the case, this priest prophet, uh, Ezekiel, uh, spends five years in captivity. He is one of some 10,000 Jewish souls that is taken out of the land of their nativity. And we find him later in chapter 1 that he's by the river Chebar, which is southwest of Babylon. He is in a foreign land, surrounded by a foreign tongue, away from the land of promise. And it's there that God calls him. And the, the chapters, the 40 some 48 chapters of Ezekiel could break down into a significant outline. Let me just give that quickly to you. We'll preach it, but it might help us as we study and consider. The first few chapters deal with his preparation. How he gets, where he gets to, uh, uh, how he gets to Chebar, where, what God is doing, what God has called him to do, and what he has prepared him to do. And then you get to the next bulk of some 20 chapters, from chapter 4 to chapter 24. And you get there, and you really have his proclamation. God spends the better part of 20 chapters calling upon the Son of Man here, Ezekiel, namely to consider the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem. That's not light on the heart of Ezekiel. This was the land he loved. He would stand beside her and pray that God would guide her with a light that is from above. But he's a long ways away in Babylon, and God has not forgotten the iniquity of Jerusalem, and God has pledged himself and all of his omniscience that he would rain down judgment upon them such was not seen. And Ezekiel would be the mouthpiece to do that. I don't know about you, but that would bring sadness to my heart. It's one thing to talk that God is going to judge. It's another thing to prophesy exactly how God is going to judge and to be that mouthpiece in that time. But then God was not just going to judge uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. No man, Ezekiel in chapter 18 says, the soul that sinneth, do you remember? Yes. That's not just good for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's good for any of humanity that sin against the Almighty God. For the wages of sin is death. And so in chapter 25 through 32, you really have his prophecies. And he prophesies through a series of countries. He prophesies God's judgment against Ammon and against Moab and against Eden, Philistia, uh, Tyre, Sidon, and even Egypt. And then there's a promise in chapter number 33. It's a promise that prophetically God gave to Ezekiel and no doubt brought great elation to his heart. And that was simply this, the faithfulness of an almighty God. And that is this theme, that God had a promise for Israel's great need. That if Israel would repent, God would spare the judgment. And then he closes out the last dozen and a half verses or so, really talking about preaching about the promises of Israel. 
a future blessing that would come. And that's really a brief outline, but we find ourselves here this evening in chapter 22. So we're in the closing chapters in which God would primarily deal with the idea, the essence of the judgment that would be upon Jerusalem. Really an overriding theme of Ezekiel deals with the glory of God. We were reminded this week that it is not the glory of our own hand, but rather the glory of God that must be had. That was a hope that Ezekiel held to. The promised glory of God that would be found in the faithfulness of an almighty God. But notice, if you will, verse 30. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Most men will proclaim their own goodness. But a faithful man, who can find? Note here in verse 30, the Lord speaking prophetically to Ezekiel, And I sought for a man among them, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to those that were given the oracles of God, to those that had the priestly uh, and high priestly uh, uh, design, to those that were at once to, supposed to be a theocracy, to those that would be promised the coming son of David that would sit eternally on his father's throne, to the people of God that were promised by the Abrahamic covenant, a land, a seed, and a blessing, and a promised future redemption in the epistle of Romans. He said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, Stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. And note the Lord's summary consideration. I found none. Most men, but a faithful man who can find. Father, I pray that you'd guide my thoughts certainly my heart this evening, all the responsibility of each of us to be that man, that individual that will be faithful to God despite the storms and the society in which we live, that would embrace the truths of God's clear commands, adhere to them humbly, and be unshaken with singleness of mind towards our endeavor to stand for Christ, yea, even in these last days. Might our hearts be open to thy word that we might hear wondrous things from thy law. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's all number of people here in the land of Judah. It's not simply that there's a lot of inhabitants, but there's a lot of different classifications. If you're looking for a good outline, you can find it here in verse 26 through 29. There's four groups that it seems in Ezekiel that God took special umbrage with, meaning four specific groups that he had an issue with because of their actions. If you look in verse 26, he said, or a priest. Now, time will not allow us, but if you turn to the early part of chapter 22, it's not the first time the prints are mentioned, rather. Uh, But here in verse 26, he talks about the priest. And in summary, all of the priesthood, he says of these priests, because none of them was to be found this faithful man, he said they have violated my law. Some 613 Old Testament commands, 365 in the negative, and the balance, 208 in the positive. And God said of all of those, you have violated my law. You have not fulfilled anything that I have asked you to fulfill. In fact, he goes on, he says, they violated my law, they profaned my holy things, they have put no difference between the holy and the profane. That which was good they called evil, and that which was evil they called good. He says, you've not shewed the difference between the unclean and the clean. 
and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. So when God looked out on the inhabitants of Judah, and he considered at Jerusalem all of the priests that was there, there was not a good man that would stand in the gap and make up the hedge, if you will, among her priests. But then he moves to verse number 27. He speaks again about the princes. These are the gubernatorial leaders. These are the civic leaders of the community. He mentions them earlier, and notice what he commends those as. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves, ravenous prey. What's that next phrase? To shed blood and to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. Sounds a lot like some people's society today. Her princes shed blood. They write laws in the book that cause the destruction of the innocent. And God has not forgotten it. In the early chapter, he talks about them shedding blood. I think of Proverbs chapter 6, These things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination to him, and one of those that go about shedding blood. He accused these prince out and out of being murderers. And so among all the prince that could have been like days gone by, like a Hezekiah or a David or many of the other good kings that could have called the people nationally to submission to the high God and set an example. There was not any to be found among the princes. So you look at the priest, there were none to be found. They were busy violating God's law. You look at the princes, they were busy getting dishonest gain and enriching their own coffers and ignoring the pleas of God and of those godly prophets that he would send. Speaking of prophets, notice verse 28. He said, Our prophets, this is a good fancy word here, have daubed them with untempered mortar. That's a wonderful phrase. It's a technical phrase. I'm not a mason. My neighbor passed away a couple of days ago. He was a stonemason. And I had some parging work to do at my house. Uh, rather, I might say I had some supervisory work for my son to do. I was going to supervise him doing it. And... Uh, I had to learn the difference, what all this was, you know. And he gave me a quick lesson and instructed me on the baseline compositions of mortar and how all that works. But primarily, the composition of mortar exists of three base ingredients. There are some distinctions in one of them, but you have sand, you have water, and you have lime. But if you don't have those three ingredients combined in the right format, it will not adhere, it will not cement, it will not hold things in place. The idea of daubing has the idea of just whitewashing, almost like an empty stucco. And they have taken the idea of these breaches that were in the walls. And these prophets, they had the elements needed to address it and to see it fixed and to call God's people back to a place of faithfulness to Him. But rather than repairing it with something that was going to last, they have taken of essence of the ingredients and they had left out very important ingredients and they had taken and instead of really fixing it in there they had daubed it they had just whitewashed it my I'll tell you there's a lot of preaching today that goes out as daubing with untempered mortar God looked at all the prophets he said boy they preach one thing they have preached a free grace with no repentance they've preached a love without any holiness They've preached an action with no consideration of that which God, uh, pleases God. They have whitewashed the entire matter. There's breaches in the walls because of the prophets. He says of these, Thus saith the Lord God, they proclaim things that God has not even spoken. 
Boy, I would think of our society today, it's dark because of some of the governmental rulings. It's dark because of some of the princes of the land. And certainly there's many priests that have gone about violating very God's very law and condemning those that would follow them. But there's many of individuals who said they're called of God to do something. They're a prophet of God. And they've instructed masses of people to become the best version of themselves. God's not a bit interested in you being the best version of yourself or me being the best version of myself. I hate to mirror this to you, but when you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, look at the mirror and say about yourself what God has said about yourself. That all are wicked. That God looked down, Psalm 14, upon the sons of men to see if there were any that doeth good. And you know what he found? None. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm telling you in our society, I know that's not good for self-evaluation and personal esteem in life. No, friend, that's the faithfulness of God that does that. Who hath given us exceedingly great riches. Ephesians speaks of this. That's the marvelous grace. He's prophets. He couldn't find one good man among them. And then he comes down to verse 29. He says the people. You see all those P's. Priest, prince, prophets, people. The people of the land have used oppression. Well, who are the people of the land? All of them. That's the citizenry. By the way, I'll tell you something that is historically observable and biblically observable. Your civil government is always a, reputa uh, always a representation of the citizenry that makes it up. If the people of God, in a broad sense, were interesting in worshiping and trusting and following God, the princes and the priests and the prophets would have checked themselves. The prophets and the princes were preaching what the people's ears wanted to hear. There's a great fear today in these ages. As many of individual uh, that sits under the sound preaching of the Word of God and it displeases them. Oh, what a disdain. No wonder Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, despise not prophesyings. No wonder he wrote to Timothy, the day shall come when they will desire to themselves teachers having itching ears. It wasn't just the princes. Oh, how often we deal with that today. Oh, it's the princes. Oh, it's the priest. Oh, it's the prophets. It's the people. It's the people too. He said they've used oppression. They've exercised robbery. They've vexed the poor and needy. They've oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man. Boy, as I read this, something grabbed hold of me. What kind of man would this be? There's going to be a faithful guy to make up the hedges and to stand in the gaps. I know. And in my mind, I begin to consider. I said, I know the brother. I know what kind of man it's going to be. It's going to be a Samson-like man. It's going to be a man whose ears bulge. That's got to be the man. He's going to have to have the strength of a thousand lions. He's going to have to have the brilliance of all the academia. He's going to have to convince people He's going to have to incite people to godliness. Oh, he's got to have a dynamic personality. And in my mind, I had envisioned all of this. There's an interesting Hebrew word. The, the word man you have, there's a couple different Hebrew words. but primarily two Hebrew words that underline the word man in your scriptures. One of them is esh. It's just a man. It's the idea of a male. It's a common expression. I know it's 2023, so we'll have to get a translation for this, but it's a dude. Esh. 
He got another word. It's very interesting now. It's Geber. And that word, it means a mighty man. For instance, you think in the psalm where it says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. You remember that? Blessed is the man that hath his... It's not just any esh. It's a man of war. Now I'm going to tell you that I about got me a six-point buck tonight. I'm not joking at all. My son and I were talking. Neither one of us paying attention. I'm coming down the road. And I mean, I about broadsided him. And that turkey turned and smiled at me. I'm going to promise you. I stopped and I looked at him and he looked at me and his little lips did a twitch, you know. And he walked off. I know some of you are like, man, I'm already planning to go out this weekend. I had my window down. So I rolled down the window and I looked at him. And he cut that eye back at me and just kind of nodded. And he went walking away. Now I think about that deer. The reason that deer is that bold is because he's in an area where you can't hunt him with a rifle. That's why. Too many houses around. Now somebody told me, one of the hunters here said, well, if it's within so many yards of a house, archery season's coming. I want to make a point about that. There's some of you archers. And that deer would be in fear and trepidation if you pulled up a bow on it. He'd die of laughter if I pulled one. That's the difference of a mighty man with a bow and just a dude with a bow. <laughs> In my mind, I sought for a man. In my mind, I think Samson. I think of a guy that is going to come in and his personality and his background, his physical capability, why he's going to stand head and shoulders above all. The people are going to look at him. And he's going to be all to be greatly articulate with tongue. That's the man that God needs. That's the man that God, that's the components of a faith. That kind of man. You know this, I sought for a man. It's not good there. It's just a plain old ordinary dude. God said, I just want a man that would see my faithfulness and stand in the gap and make a thing. It's just, just a man. It's just a man. But friend, there's been a lot of faithful men that really in and of themselves were not esteemed greatly. That interceded, stood in the gap, made up the hedge. But the power and the faithfulness of God. I think about Genesis 18. God sent to old Abraham. He's going to rain down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Who's Abraham? Yeah, he's got some money. He's one man. He's one man. And yet Abraham interceded. There was a faithful man. There wasn't a household of people that were praying. Just, just one man. A faithful man. A friend of God. He was there. He was making up the hedge. I think of the New Testament. Oh, Stephen, a preaching deacon. He goes out and preaches. And they stone him. That's barbaric. Old Testament stoning. As a little kid, I'd hear about them stoning, and I thought, man, those guys never played dodgeball. That was the problem with it. Why would you stand there and let them hit you? I didn't realize until later that they, buried, they captured you and buried you waist deep. You weren't going anywhere, friend. You were trapped. And then I thought, oh, how horrific that was. And then I remembered Stephen. 
They're pelting him with stones. And yet, his last words were a prayer to God as he interceded on those stiff-necked people. Lay not this to their charge. Here's a man for you. Oh, he wasn't bulging in muscular abilities. His messages were not well known. They didn't go viral in his day. There's only really recorded one that he preached. He paid with his very life, but he was faithful. He was faithful. I think about Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 9. Paul, just a man, prayed for Israel, Lord, that I might be cut off, that they might be saved. Chapter 10, verse 1, my prayer and heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. Here's a man that stood in the gap, just a man. I think of Daniel, the aged prophet. I tried to kill him a few chapters before, and in Daniel chapter 9, he's back at the praying again. And all of Daniel chapter 9, as he understood scriptures, it moved him. He understood the coming judgment that would be placed. He understood some things that's revealed in scripture to him. And he began to pray. What else could he do? Hint, hint. He wasn't in Israel. He's not going to return with the people. He's just going to have to be faithful. And he prays one of the greatest intercessory prayers in the Old Testament. I think about our command in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're praying always for all people. For those that are in government, those that are in high places, that we might lead a peaceable, godly life. All of us are called to this. Of course, when I think about one that would stand in the gap and one that's faithful, I think about Christ. Even on the cross, forgive them, they know not what they do. And yet Hebrews tells me still, interceding on my behalf. He is my advocate. There is throughout the New Testament numerous passages that call you and I, it's just common people, to faithfulness. We're very good at the Moses terminology, I can't speak well. We're very good at the Jonah excuse, I'm going to go a different way. We're very good at finding every reason why we can't do it. And not considering that it is the express commands of God that He wants all of us to be faithful. Preacher, you don't know how hard it is. You don't know how difficult it is. Friend, He wants you to be faithful. He knows your frame. He knows the gift He's entrusting you. The greatest thing that you and I can do is to be faithful in obedience to Him. Well, I was teasing Brother Stevenson before service. I said, you put all of us... Well, not some of you preachers are like this. You can sing. You can preach. But friend, are you doing what God wants you to do? One day I'm going to give an account not for what I could have done if He had given me something different, but for what I actually done did. It's a man. First Corinthians chapter 6, watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men. Do you remember that next phrase? Be strong. Be strong. Ephesians 6 and verse 3, put on the full armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to... I sought for a man that would just stand. Just stand. To be steadfast, unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know. Your labor wasn't in vain. Look back here at Ezekiel. Let's look at some of the components tonight, quickly, of a faithful man. I already told you what it wasn't. I'm just 
Five things God was looking for. By the way, it's five things he's looking for even at this hour. Notice in that first phrase of verse number 30, I sought for a man. I want you to consider that for a moment. This is the preeminent quality that God's looking for. Something that he sought for. I would submit to you that one of the primary components of a faithful man is it's a man that is submissive to the person of the Almighty God. He's submissive. James 4 says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. If you think for a moment about that, God resists. It ends in the E-T-H-F, you know, and that means it continues. God continually resists the proud. That word resist is a powerful word. It's a military terminology. It doesn't mean that God rolls his eyes at the proud. No, in Proverbs chapter 6, he hates pride. It's an abomination unto him. But the idea of resist is the idea with every fiber of his being. It's a military term. It has the idea of going out in full battle array against something. God hated the activities and works here of the inhabitants of Judah. It's particularly of the city of Jerusalem. He's looking for a man that can be submissive to him. I sought for a man. A man, as we read in Proverbs chapter 20, will not proclaim self. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way through inspiration. Let a man account us as ministers and stewards. Ministers of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word ministers is a fantastic word. We often think of it as a servant. That's really not the essence of that word there. That minister is really this. It's an under rower. Now, I don't have much experience in this. I rode a boat one time and found out that uh, it's a team sport. Or at least your left and right hand got to be in good sync with each other. Have you ever seen that old, old film? What's it called? Uh, Ben-Hur. And there's that one part where a fellow's in the galley of the ship. And the three abreast, they're slaves. None of them had chosen this as a career path. Three on one and three on the other. And they're all there. Three in a row. Three in a row. Probably dozens on one side and dozens on the other. Rowing. And in the middle stands the taskmaster. His primary job is to follow the orders of the captain. But not only were these under rowers simply moving the boat, but they're steering the boat to some degree. So if they need to turn in one direction, one has to row, one side's got to row at one pace together, and the ones on the other side have to row at a faster pace if they're going to turn. And the inverse would be true. And so when the order is yelled that they're to go forward or starboard or port or whatever the command is, to judge that taskmaster to get all the ministers, that's the idea, under roars, moving in sync. You know, that's what Paul said. You think of him as apostle. You think of him as apostle to the Gentiles. You would think of him as one that God used to pen much of the New Testament. Paul summarized his ministry and said, I'm just a minister of God. I'm a galley servant. 
You know, that's the kind of guy, guy that God would use. I sought for a man. What's that preeminent trait? He's submissive to the person. Lord, what will thou have me do? Lord, what will thou have me do? Oh, see, that's the problem. The prophets of the land weren't listening to the beckoning call of God. The priests of the land were not following the express commands of God. The people were not listening to the express commands of God. And God said, I look for a man and the chief quote, uh, quote and desire that that man needs to have is to be submissive to the person. Notice again, let me give you a second one. I must hurry. God looked for a man that was submissive to the person, but God looked for a man that has a singleness of purpose. Oh, I could tarry here. Oh, how important it is in the Christian life to have some singleness. Matthew, he talks about if that I be single. The inverse, the opposite of singleness is a double-minded man. Oh, see, here's the problem today we live. We got people that start with a flash and end with a bang. They had that singleness of purpose for a little bit. They thought surely God was going to call them to do something or God had called them to do something. But the first couple of hurdles they muddled through and they said, well, I changed my mind. We've got a lot of whimsical Christians today. They've built no spiritual endurance in their life. They're not steadfast and unmovable. They are quick to run the opposite direction. And yet what they failed to realize is it's not the better direction. Onward and forward, steadfast, moving, lockstep in the commands of God. God wanted a man that had singleness of purpose. Notice his purpose. He said, I saw for a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap. Just focus on those words, make and stand. And not very hard to think about. That hedge is the exterior wall of protection. Fix it where it's broken and stand where it's broken until it gets fixed. He's not asking him to do something outside the capacity of what he's equipped him to do. By the way, God's never going to ask you to do something that's beyond the capacity that he's equipped you to do. But you've got to have a purposed heart to do so. Singleness of mind. That was Paul's command to Timothy. Make foolproof thy ministry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he tells of his ministry. He said, exhort them. Warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. This is your task. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Have a singleness of purpose. But it may be that God's called you and opened the door for you in this life to serve Him. Then with singleness of purpose and submission of heart, follow through that door. We're always looking at some man that needs to stand somewhere. What about the individual that's sitting in our chair this evening? Notice the third qualification. That's all for man. Should make up the hedge, stand in the gap. Circle back to those words. Hedge and gap. That hedge, that exterior wall, it's falling apart. Instead of mending it correctly, the prophets have whitewashed it. They've tacked it all together. It looks the part, but it's going to crumble. Here this man had a responsibility. And the component of faithfulness in his life is he sees a sacred priority. There's a hedge and there's a gap. There's something that's going to bring danger not only to him, but to the inhabitants of the city. And he needs the word of truth from the Almighty God. 
and must adhere to it at all times. Listen, in the crucibles of life, in the darkest times of life, is the most present opportunity you have to adhere to the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You think of 2 Timothy for a moment, particularly chapter 3. You remember how it goes? In the last days, perilous times shall come. It's really the theme of 2 Timothy. But then you circle back in each chapter, Paul's admonishing Timothy to do something. Now, what are you going to do during perilous times? Well, let me give you the 2023 edition. Hoard up, store up, arm up, and hide. That's the 2023 edition. Get your bug out bag ready for the coming struggle. Store up. It's going to be bad, man. It's going to get worse. I honestly believe there's a lot of Christians that hope it gets worse. It gives us one more reason why we can't do what God has called us to do. One more reason why we do not have to accept the faithfulness of God. One more reason why we can't uh, or not require to be faithful unto Him. But to Timothy in these perilous times, listen to these. Chapter 1 and verse 13, hold fast the form of sound doctrine. I like that phrase. I get excited about that. Hold fast! You'd almost hear it, can't you? In the thunderous war, and the devastation of battle, as the lines begin to creep beside them, and that single unit, or perhaps that single soldier, that officer crying out, Hold the line! Hold fast! That's what Paul is echoing to Timothy. Hold fast thou the things of sound doctrine. Oh, we live in a world <laughs> prophesying to me smooth things. Doctrine divides, preacher. No doctrine will unify around the truths of the Word of God. Every child of God ought to embrace theology. They ought to be theologians. I'm not taking the weight of responsibility off the preachers, but oh, how important it is. Understanding and keeping biblical truths and principles will steadfast you are, will steady your feet in the great storms of life. Hold fast. He tells him in chapter 2 and verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Chapter 3 and verse 14, but continue thou in the things that thou hast learned, knowing of whom thou hast learned. He tells him in chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word. You know what he tells him? You know what the response to Timothy in regards to the perilous times that shall come? You know what the answer was? A man that had a sacred priority. Make the Word of God preeminent. There's a fourth component if you look here in verse number 30. Well, you're making up the hedge, you're standing in the gap. The Lord says you're standing in the gap before me in the land. This is a man that had to have some sound privileges, or rather I should say sound principles. Why? Because you got the people that aren't doing right. You got the heralds, the prophets that aren't doing right. You got the priest that everybody's supposed to see as an example. Well, they're not doing right. You got the princes and those are the ones making the law and they're not doing right. To stand for the land is an, is an identity. It's a man that's going to have to be sound, founded on some absolute principles. We're a dangerous time in our country. Dangerous time in our world. We can't even... <laughs> I had a lady tell me some time ago, her husband, it was last deer season actually. This is just strikes me as funny. The fellow was telling me, went out hunting. I said, did you get anything? He said, no. He said, but my dad did. He said, but I don't, I don't know about my dad. He said, it, and I don't understand all this, but it was an antlerless deer. And there was a rule about it. And uh, 
he said, uh, I looked at it and I'm pretty sure there was a spike and it was an illegal shoot. And he said, no, son, it's antlerless. And he said, we argued about it for about an hour because he sent me these photos. And I said, well, what did, you, what did you figure out? And he was about to tell me and his wife jumped in there and she said, we'll never know, preacher. And I said, why will you never know if it was a male or a female? female deer she goes because it's dead it can't tell us that's where we live in today no absolutes whatsoever well this is a man that's standing before the land he's got to have some sound principles the princes are straying the priests are violating the prophets the prophets are daubing with untempered unkept mortar What's the call to this sound man? Faint not. Faint not. Our church has been memorizing 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read you a piece of that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing, he says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, who's it hid from? Come on, church. Who's it hid from? Them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light or the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servant, for Jesus Christ, for God. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. You think about the creation. It was dark. God said, let there be light. Friend, but he's not just referencing creation. He has shined in our hearts. Amen. My heart was black with sin until the Savior came in. His precious blood, I know, has washed me white as snow. Oh, once I was lost but now I am found. Titus said, I was hateful and hating one another, but the loving kindness of God. Marvelous, this man, if he's going to be a faithful man in the time of Judah, he needed to be a man that had some sound principles. Oh, how we need some sound principles in our lives. The wholesome words of truth. Notice a fifth thing. This is a profound one, really. It's that last phrase, that I should not destroy it found none. He's a man that has a sure perception. What is the wages of sin? Death. Judgment. Friend, this man, one of his grand motives is going to keep him standing, working on the hedge and standing in the gaps is the sure certainty of God's impending judgment. What was it that called, caused old Abraham to keep praying? Because he believed God. If God would have told him a snowstorm was going to hit Sodom, he'd have believed him. Certainly when God said, I'm going to burn fire and brimstone upon them, Abraham believed God. What was it that motivated Noah, that preacher of righteousness, to build a ship, an ark? It wasn't so he can sell it mission tickets. No, friend, what was he doing? He believed God. What was it that caused Enoch to be a godly man in that pre-flood era? He believed God. What was it that caused Daniel to be stirred to intercessory prayer? He believed God. 
Paul said of this. It's one of his motivators of ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Therefore, seeing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And man, one of the great causes is that he's standing in the gap. He's got a sure perception he believes God. He believes God. He believes the promise of what's coming to the unbeliever. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The next verse, verse number 9, talks about an everlasting destruction. By the reality that there is an utter escapable destiny in hell for those that reject God. What calls him standing the gap? He believed God. My friend, God's not looking tonight for our view of a faithful man. He's looking for a man that will abide and embrace these five components and just stand and obey. God has and can and will continue to do great things with what the world esteems weak. One day when we stand before Him, many of us are going to have to hang our head in shame because we doubted the very promises of God. He said, I'm the faithful God. And He's called us to faithfulness as well. I sought for a man, but I found none. How about tonight? Is there a man that will stand for God in the home, in the workplace, in the highways, in the byways of life? Maybe people at Rice say, I'll stand for God in my church. I'll serve God. I'll seek to please God. I'll cast down those things in my life that have preempted me from serving God. I'll be that man. Friend, it's that willing, submissive heart. That's what God needs most. It's not by sword that we win the victory. It's by the power of the Almighty God. Will you be that man? That's our question. Let's stand here. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 